Holy God, we welcome you this morning with praise. Come and make your presence known in this place that we might encounter you anew this morning, that we might come to understand your love and grace further, deeper this morning, that we might develop a closer relationship with you because we are intentional about it, because we want to. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts on your words this morning be good and pleasing and acceptable to you, O God, our strength and redeemer. Amen. So here we are. We're going to do a, uh, a little brief recap. So um, as Derek so kindly read for us this morning, uh, we're in Jonah chapter 2. You're welcome to keep that open this morning, but a quick recap from Jonah chapter 1 last week, okay? Just because I want us, as we're going on this series on lessons from Jonah, we're going to keep a, a streamlined flow through it all. So Jonah chapter 1, we, we started by talking about kind of the intent behind the book of Jonah. Now, if you weren't here last week, I might be stepping on some toes. We can talk about it later if you would like, or if you want to shout out your angry tirade, that's okay. Most scholars do not believe that the book of Jonah is a literal historic book. And what I mean is, most people agree that the exact events in the book of Jonah probably didn't happen word for word like they did. We do speculate that Jonah was a real person. You can look in 2 Kings, can't remember the Bible verse because, you know, I'm a bad pastor, uh, but in 2 Kings, you can look and see there is a person named Jonah that comes up outside of the book of Jonah, and he is, in fact, the son of Amittai, as we talked about last week. But aside from that, we don't really get much of Jonah's actual life. Now, maybe something like the book of Jonah actually happened to Jonah. Maybe it didn't. What scholars do agree on is that the actual historic facts of Jonah are irrelevant. What does matter is what the narrative speaks to us and the lessons that we can glean from it. Most people take Jonah like a parable. You know, in, in Jesus' ministry, he's always talking through parables, using narratives and stories to get his point across. Well, that develops out of the Jewish tradition of storytelling. It's not, it's not a, a new invention. They've been doing it for, for thousands of years. And most people believe that Jonah was the same, that the book of Jonah is the same way. A narrative used to prove a point a narrative to get us thinking about something differently than we might have. So Jonah receives this call from God. Go and speak to Nineveh, that great city, and give them this message that I'm giving to you. And Jonah says, deuces, I'm out of here, and turns and runs the other direction off to Tarshish. We had Tarshish spoken to us three times last Sunday. Jonah runs opposite direction to Tarshish because... Nineveh is a horrible place for Jonah. During the time that Jonah was allegedly written, the, uh, the kingdom of Assyria is rising up to power, and they are starting to conquer most of the known world, and that ends up including Israel, which is where Jonah is from. And so in the process, Assyria ends up throwing all of the Israelites into exile. They're kicked out of their homeland. They are sent to the curb, or some of them sent, uh, brought back to Assyria as slaves. And so because of that, Israelites aren't very fond of Assyria, understandably so. Now the capital of Assyria is Nineveh, that great city which God sends Jonah to. 
This, and, and Nineveh at this time was probably the largest city on the face of the planet, uh, considering the, the, how deep their kingdom roots went. And so Jonah is being sent to Nineveh, to that great city, to the capital of Assyria, to proclaim this message from God. Paraphrasing here, you're all, you all are doing horrible things, change your ways, or you're going to be destroyed. And whenever Jonah hears this, he turns and runs toward Tarshish because, number one, Jonah hates Nineveh. As any good Israelite would do, Jonah hates Assyria. He doesn't want to go there. He wants to be as far away as possible from there. Number two, any person from an occupied country going to the capital city of that occupying nation is probably going to be treated pretty horribly. I expect violence would be involved. And so Jonah knows this and says, I'm staying away from that mess. I'm not getting anywhere close to Nineveh. That would be the end of me. Jonah is pretty wise so far. And three, Jonah is dramatic. Jonah is really dramatic. I mean, he tops all other, well, most other prophets in Scripture. We can talk about some other fun ones at some time. But in, uh, he he hates Nineveh so much that he would rather them be destroyed. You see, he knows that if he takes this message to Nineveh, that if he goes to them and tells them what God spoke to, to him, that there is a chance, maybe a small chance, but there is a chance that Nineveh would actually repent and turn from their ways and become like this really great, awesome people, and then God would spare them, would save them. And once again, Jonah hates Nineveh, hates Assyria, and Jonah wants to see them burned. Jonah wants to see their destruction. He, wants to, he, he doesn't want them to be saved. And so he turns and runs toward Tarshish to get away. In the process of running toward Tarshish, he gets on a boat, and all of a sudden a storm comes up while they are out on the water, and this freaks the sailors out because I guess at this time in, in the world's history, storms were uncommon on the ocean. I don't know. But anyways, they get freaked out because, uh, because you know, a great storm came up. And they realize that Jonah is the one to blame. Not atmospheric conditions, but Jonah is the one to blame for the storm. And so they take Jonah and throw him overboard. And then God sends a large fish, not a whale, a large fish to come and swallow Jonah and save him. And that's where our narrative picks up in Jonah chapter 2 this morning. Now here, as we're going into Jonah chapter 2, there are a couple of things that we need to be aware of. The first is that Jonah is experiencing the worst fate imaginable for the time. And what I mean by that is during Jonah's time, actually for most of ancient Near Eastern civilization and on, People, had, people were terrified of the sea, like absolutely terrified of it. And pretty justifiably so, it's because, you know, the sea is kind of unknown. It's untamable. Crazy things can happen while you're at the sea. Hurricanes come up. My friends and I were down at Dolphin Island this weekend, and we saw two water spouts come out of nowhere. Crazy things can happen at, the, at sea. It, and even more so, it's terrifying what happens underneath the sea. You see, at this time in human civilization, we had not yet developed scuba gear or submarines, so we didn't know what was going down there. Uh, maybe you could see, if you were in clear enough water, you could see deep enough, a couple feet, and see some fish. But beyond that, you know, we haven't gotten fire to work underwater yet, and so we didn't know what was happening underneath there. 
And so they figured best to assume the worst. And so the sea, the ocean, the depths of the ocean became known as Sheol. And this is a, a term that comes up a lot in scripture, uh, particularly in the Old Testament. Sheol is essentially the underworld, the place of unknown, but at least the place where all bad things come from. Uh, demons and great monsters and stuff like that come from Sheol. Uh, and this, is, this obviously has to exist underneath the ocean because what else could be down there but horrible things? And so Jonah... Whenever the, whenever the other sailors address him and say, why on earth has this storm come up? And he says, it's my fault. He says to them, they ask him, what do we do to stop this storm? And he says, well, the most obvious thing is for you to pick me up and throw me into the ocean. That makes sense. And that will, that will quell the storm and we'll all be good. Jonah, in that moment, has already accepted his death. He's basically said, you know, I grew up, grew up around a fishing town. I know how to swim. But if you're tossing me into the ocean, I'm going down to the pits of Sheol. I'm not going to survive this. He's already accepted his death. So Jonah gets tossed overboard and begins to sink and do the whole, you know, underwater thing that's very unpleasant. But here's the catch. The catch, which we know is coming because it makes sense, but that Jonah doesn't know is coming. He survives. No person being thrown into Sheol, being cast out into the ocean, has ever been able to come back up from the depths. We understand that as drowning. But, you know, you, you just don't come back up the way Jonah does. But he survives. God sends this great fish and to, to swallow him, which I can imagine, you know, at least for the two days that he was inside the fish, he was having to really deal with some serious trauma because... I don't know, for us, we think, of the, we think of the ocean as like a lovely place to vacation, take the boat out, do some fishing, whatever. In Jonah's time, this is a much more stressful event to be out in the ocean. And I imagine that was, was exponentially greater when all of a sudden, as he's drowning, he witnesses a mouth opening up around him and swallowing him. It, it blows my mind that we make Jonah into a children's story. This is a horror story. This is the epitome of Jaws in the Bible right here. But sure enough, fish comes around, swallows him, takes him in. And having experienced at least the closest thing that he could imagine to death and destruction, Jonah becomes more sympathetic towards those who might experience the same. In other words, he starts to realize... This whole destruction thing, it's not that great. Um, in fact, it's pretty horrible. And I don't think it would be good for other people to experience this as well, namely Nineveh. He starts to become a little more sympathetic towards them. But what develops a little extra oomph in his, in his sympathy is that Jonah recognizes that despite his disobedience, Despite the fact that God called on him to go and do something and he turned and ran toward Tarshish, the opposite direction, that, that despite completely turning his back on God, God still delivers him. God still saves him. God still rescues him, despite the fact that Jonah turned away. Any other God of the time would have, you know, that would have been it. You would have been dead and done. And, you know, there's no point in keeping around somebody who's not going to obey but God saves Jonah, rescues him. 
And so Jonah is left in the fish for three days and three nights. And I imagine this is the time that the fish was, you know, swimming back up to shore. Or maybe Jonah really needed those three days to collect himself. But what I love about Jonah, and this is kind of a sidebar, Jonah becomes a symbol for resurrection, for new life. Jonah becomes a symbol for for things being completely turned around. Because he was this person who was running from God, and now he, he's becoming this person who's running back towards, what, towards God's call. He was this person who was thrown to the depths of Sheol and ends up becoming a person who uh, steps out onto dry land. He was this person who was surely going to experience death, but instead lives. And Jesus, whenever Jesus comes along a few hundred years, even quotes Jonah saying, uh, when speaking about his own crucifixion, death, and resurrection, says, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so too will the Son of Man be in the grave for three days and three nights before his resurrection. So Jonah becomes a symbol for resurrection for days to come. But I think that Jonah really needed those three days to, to collect himself, to really refigure out his priorities to start to understand, oh, maybe I wasn't doing the best job before. And I think it came from Jonah's pride. That Jonah had this sense that I know what's best for the world instead of God. I know what's best for the world, and I'm going to take action on what I know is best. Jonah has a little bit of pride about him, thinking that he is the one who should be governing the way salvation comes to people. And so we're going to talk about pride a little bit this morning. Uh, as, as you can see in your bulletin, our uh, sermon title is on knowing our place. And so, you know, that you better know your place. We're talking, going to be talking about pride this morning. And it's, a, it's an odd topic to talk about because pride isn't necessarily a bad thing. Psychologically speaking, people, uh, experts agree that a certain amount of pride and respect for yourself and for others is actually a really good thing. It's healthy. But an abundance of pride becomes dangerous. Because, you know, I don't know if you've ever encountered somebody who's really full of themselves, like knows that they are the boss, knows that they are what's up, and, and you, can, you start talking to them, and you're like, okay, we aren't going to hang out very often. Because, you know, whenever you have that certain level of, of, of pride and arrogance, people are like, it's a, you need to tone it down, we're, we're just going to need you to back off on that. An abundance of pride is a little bit much. People, we know inherently that too much pride is a dangerous thing. So to talk about pride a little bit, I wanted to talk about one of my favorite movies of all time. Like of all time. The Lion King. I love The Lion King. It is, is one of my favorite movies tied for first place with Forrest Gump, and I'll bring up Forrest Gump on another day, but I love The Lion King. And, and uh, just recently, uh, my wife took me yeah, it wasn't, like, it wasn't like we were going on a date. She took me to go see The Lion King as if I'm, I was a little child, and I was. I was weeping during, during this, this new version of it. My hands were up in the air. I was like, yes, God, yes, God. It was, it was a beautiful experience. I love The Lion King. And, and uh, you know, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen The Lion King, it's about lions. Uh, and and during, during the narrative of the movie, at least at the beginning, um, the king of the lions and the kingdom uh, of sub-Saharan Africa, or Saharan Africa, is uh, this great lion named Mufasa. And he and his wife are 
lioness partner, whatever, have a child named Simba, and Simba's going to be the new king of uh, the kingdom one day, and, and Mufasa takes Simba out on a little stroll one very early morning to show him the kingdom. And, and I love using the Lion King to talk about pride because a lion's kingdom and, and company are called a pride, right? So, you know, it's a little ironic here, but the, uh, that's why I like bringing it up. And so, as Mufasa's showing Simba the pride and the kingdom and getting him acquainted with it all, Simba start, uh, starts dreaming about what, what life will be like whenever he's king. And that's kind of the premise of the first half of the movie is he just can't wait to be king because then he gets to decide everything that goes on. In fact, there's a whole musical number about how he just can't wait to be king because then there's nobody saying do this and nobody saying do that, nobody saying uh, stop that, nobody saying see here and all that stuff. And, and whenever, he, whenever Mufasa is teaching him about the kingdom, uh, and Simba says, you know, he can't just he can't wait for it to be for him to be able to do just whatever he wants. Mufasa talks about how uh, he says there's more to being a king than just getting your way all the time. And Simba says, "There's more." And Mufasa says, "As king, you need to understand. You need to understand the balance. This circle of life." He sa- he calls. Uh, he calls it, and, you know, the opening song calls it, and respect all the creatures, from the crawling ant to the leaping antelope. Mufasa, the pride of Mufasa is one of humility, one that recognizes that the best way to lead, the best way to rule, is not from a place of arrogance, not from a place where you can just do whatever you want, but it's a place of respect and understanding balance, It's a place of taking a step back and recognizing that others around us are just as important as we are. That's taking a step back and recognizing that we are not the epitome of human existence. That I am not the most perfect specimen you'll ever encounter. That there are others around us that we need to be considerate of and have respect for. It's, it's, It's the message in which Simba eventually latches onto and uses to, uh, to develop his own kingdom, and which we start to see in The Lion King 2, but I won't get into that because it's The Lion King 2, and it was just okay. But back to Jonah. Jonah's pride, like I said before, I'm, I'm of the mindset that Jonah needed those three days because Jonah's pride took about three days to dissipate. And maybe part of that was sheer terror and post-traumatic stress because he had just, you know, gone through an extreme horror. But anyways, Jonah needed about three days and actually be removed from his place in order to understand that it wasn't his place to call the shots. God is trying to work a miracle and save Nineveh and save the people. And Jonah tries to call the shots and say, they're not worth saving. I'm going to save myself instead. But Jonah has to be physically removed. And even after he's physically removed and has these these, uh, three days to dissipate his pride, he then comes to this point where he recognizes that even whenever he turned away from God, God still saved him. And it starts to click. Oh, I'm Nineveh. I've been doing the exact same thing. I've turned my back on God 
but now God is still trying to save me. And it starts to click, and finally, we come to his prayer, which is the entirety of chapter 2, and his prayer is a confirmation of his understanding. Now, Jonah's prayer is, is, is a beautiful form of poetry in which he recognizes on three different occasions that when he was going toward destruction, God saved him. That whenever he thought all was lost, God saved him. And whenever he thought he was sure to die, God saved him. And what he realized is that despite his unworthiness to be saved, God still saved him. God takes the steps necessary to ensure that Jonah can carry on. And Jonah comes to the climax of the book, the, what's called the thesis statement of Jonah. And he simply says, or declares, I should say, deliverance belongs to the Lord. Jonah has a hard lesson in humility. I love this passage from uh, Romans 12. Paul is speaking to the church in Rome and, and is having to kind of quell a little bit of, of uh, arrogance that's happening within the church. And he says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. It's, you know, it's, it's kind of like this slap in the face, like, get yourself together. Like, you're not all that. You're not the most important person in the room. It's this moment where Paul is trying to, trying to get the people to realize that their concern should be outside of themselves, that they should start taking care of others rather than just themselves. It's a lesson in humility that I think the church has to go through over and over and over again for some reason, to the point where we recognize God is God and we are not. Humility is one of the greatest lessons that I think the church needs to learn today because we are often guilty of getting in the way of God. We, we get all blown up about our politics and our rules and our policy. We start telling people, you know, if you don't dress this way, you can't step into the sanctuary. And we try to tell people that if you're not following this list of rules, which by the way, one day we're going to talk about this is not a rule book. Starts saying, if you're not following this list of rules, then you can't be a part of our country club, aka the church. And this church starts, the church has this mindset that we are an exclusive group, but God is trying to use the church to reach out to all people, to say all are welcomed in this place. It doesn't matter where you come from or what your history is. It's not about us, it's about God, and we are to gather together in reverence of that. And so why do we keep getting in the way of God doing what God does best? Jonah comes to this conclusion, deliverance belongs to the Lord, not us. A person cannot save another person. You know, whenever, whenever you're in church life, you, you hear a bunch of uh, hilarious and sometimes awkward stories about other people's church life. As part of the connectional system we have as United Methodists, we get together like once every month and discuss the tragedies and, and terrifying things that are happening around us. Anyways, uh, and, and oftentimes, every so often you'll hear about somebody that said, yeah, this past month I saved so many people. And I say, tell me about that. 
how does, how does, do you mean they were like choking and you, you saved them or no, I spiritually saved them? I say, tell me about that. Tell me how you got that power, uh, that authority to save somebody. Do you know what that word means? I, because pastors even start to get this, this arrogance about them. Oh my gosh, if I ever start to seem arrogant, I'm going to need you to remove me immediately. I'm serious. I, I, it makes me sick to even think that I could get there. But pastors do. They start getting arrogant with all this power that, that, that we know what's best for the church. That we know how things should be conducted. And to our credit, we have, I have gone through eight years of, of, of education to get to this place. But I still don't know it all. And I still don't have it all together. And I'm still an imperfect being. A person cannot save another person. A church cannot save a person. That's another thing. We have this mindset that the church is able to do these incredible, uh, these, these incredible act of salvation and when in fact the church is often the ones getting in the way. A person or a church can, in fact, keep another person from the love of Christ. A person or a church can hinder the work that God is doing. And that's what we need to be careful of because in our pride we start to set up roadblocks for God. And we start to forget our place. And in the realm of lessons from Jonah and knowing our place, we need to understand that our place is as vessels. Vessels like the fish was on behalf of God and the salvation of Jonah. Vessels like cars and boats and airplanes, we talked about before. Our place is as vessels to take the love of God to the world. To be agents of God's activity. Our place is not as those who get to determine the fate of others. We don't have that power or authority. We certainly get in the way of it. We certainly can. But our place is as vessels. Our place is to be people who reach out, not people who shut out. And that's a hard lesson for the church to learn sometimes. Our place is as vessels. Because when we operate as vessels, and we're going to get there next week, when we operate as vessels, God is able to work incredible things through us. God is able to do miracles and wonders, and do things that the world desperately needs. Whenever Jonah finally accepts his call as a vessel of God's deliverance, as a vessel of, uh, of God's words to a nation, we're, we're going to get there next week, but spoiler alert, Nineveh gets saved. It's something that nobody expected. It's wow. That wasn't supposed to happen, but God was able to make it happen. Our place is as vessels, not as those who get to determine the fate of others. So in, in the realm of knowing our place, it's time for us to take a humble dose of compassion, of understanding, of recognizing that we are not the ones who make the world go round. And so the question I want to leave you with today, because I like to give you a question, all of us a question to think about. It's oftentimes these questions are mostly for me because it's something that I need to deal with too. But the question I want to leave us all with today is, is just this. What might the world look like? Hypothetically, if you would like. But what might the world look like if we were to step back and let God work through us? What might the world look like 
if we were to humble ourselves from this place on high that we can end up putting ourselves and recognize the way that God wants to work in the world through us and allow that to happen. And so as I leave us with that question today, consider how our pride might be getting in the way of God. As individuals, as a church, as a community, what might God be trying to do in our community that we are getting in the way of? Let us pray together this morning as we contemplate the way that God is trying to work through us.